we're doing Ben and Glace. We're going to start this episode off on a different angle than normal. Can you tell me briefly about your experience with religion in your life? So for me, I was born and raised Catholic, CCD, the whole nine yards. Um, I was never confirmed because that's when my sort of family stopped going to the church around that time. But uh, what connects me to silence in a very personal way is I went to a Jesuit high school. Um, I'm not going to reveal the name, uh, I guess. But uh, if, if, you know, in the Philadelphia area, there's not that many Jesuit schools. So you can probably guess. Um, And so I I was never devout ever, I don't think. I mean, as a child, I'm sure it just sort of uh, plugs into your good and bad morality system being scared of God or having some sort of guilt over your actions. But I think it was almost going to Catholic school that made me <laughs> into an agnostic or an atheist, which is um, not what you think would, would happen. But the Jesuits are so sort of honest in their zeal for education that um, they're sort of notorious for creating as many agnostics and atheists as they do uh, devout Catholics, which is interesting. Bennett, first off, how, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Uh, this is uh, it's an intense movie uh, that I've not stopped thinking about since the first time I saw it. So uh, watching it several times in the last week has definitely got me, uh, I don't know, in, a, in an interesting headspace, thinking about faith, thinking about uh, thinking about the world. So do you want to give us a quick background of where you come from on this front? Yeah, uh, I was also uh, raised Catholic, though I didn't go to any Catholic schools. I think my much to my my uh, very Catholic grandparents' chagrin, I think they really wanted me to go to the same Jesuit school, Rob. And I think they probably would have even paid the tuition. Um, but yeah, my mom's family is very very Catholic. Like my dad converted to uh, so as to be able to marry her. Uh, I was confirmed, but uh, yeah, no. After that, kind of fell off. I mean, I think it's. I don't know that it's like something that I'm going to like grow out of the, the, the feeling of like Catholic guilt. I think the one thing that came across strongly in my uh, Catholic upbringing, and I, I think this is probably pretty consistent uh, amongst people who are like just kind of sort of Catholics is the, just the whole notion of like hell and damnation and sin and suffering and all of that is very strongly communicated and tends to resonate with you uh, as a, as a kid, or at least it did me. And that's the sort of thing, you know, tough to imagine ever fully growing out of that. You know, you watch a movie like Silence and it's hard not to be moved if you have, I don't know, any inkling of uh, Catholic guilt. So, Bennett, before we started recording, you mentioned that you saw this film in an empty theater for the first time. What was that experience like? Because I can't imagine (laughs) seeing this with just no one around you. (laughs) <laughs> it was yeah it was just me and my brother it was it was interesting i mean i i really would like to see this on the big screen again because it's such a massive sensory movie um uh, the scope of it is really enormous um i just remember the opening it opens with just the sounds of like nature the sounds of like cicadas and crickets and stuff and in the theater that was like deafening uh a really really incredible experience but yeah no um, it, I don't know. It, it sounds hacky to say it was like sort of a religious experience, but this very like intense, uh, like Catholic homework sort of movie, uh, with like basically a private screening did sort of feel like, I don't know, convening with something. Yeah. And my experience was very similar where I saw it at a pre-screening. Um, and I was, and I was going there and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to see all of these film critics. This is going to be so exciting. Whole, oh my God, this is like my first industry insider moment, quote, you know, a quote unquote. And I got there and there was like 10 people in the theater and there were like a lot of begrudging writers there who 
didn't really want to be there it seemed like a lot of other people who probably weren't looking to watch a three-hour movie at 10 in the morning (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah yeah all right so we are here today we're doing part two of our split picks on martin scorsese so we recently covered the king of comedy which is 1982 with robert de niro and today we are looking at a religious epic which is the third of scorsese's religious epics um so for a bit of background i mean in 1989 martin scorsese read shusaku endo's novel called silence which was published in 1966 it's a book about catholic missionaries who were attempting to bring an outlawed christian religion to japan in the 16th century um before we go deeper into that Bennett, I'm going to ask you to just give us a quick rundown, one or two minutes, on Scorsese's career between The King of Comedy and Silence, because this is a man who has made a lot of important films, and uh, one or two of them were made in that, uh, what, 24, 34-year stretch? Don't check my math. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he uh, he followed up The King of Comedy with uh, After Hours, kind of his most overt comedy. Uh, then he did The Color of Money, which is kind of... Um, I don't know, maybe some people would call it a sellout picture, some people would call it a, a one for them. Uh, it's a pool movie, a sequel to The Hustler with uh, Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. Great movie. Uh, then he oh, yeah. finally made his passion project, The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, Willem Dafoe is Jesus. That's all you need to know. Uh, <laughs> then he made Goodfellas, which was probably, uh, which was, uh, it got him back in kind of the Oscar good graces, famously lost Best Picture and Best Director to Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves, which would kind of start a narrative that would follow him for the next like decade and a half that he was overdue at the Oscars and was kind of... Uh, disrespected generally by the establishment. Uh, did the remake of Cape Fear after that, kind of another trashier one for them sort of a movie. Uh, does The Age of Innocence with Daniel Day-Lewis, very, very underrated picture, and uh, one I would recommend to anybody who thinks he's uh, you know just a mob guy. Then he did Casino, uh, though uh, another mob movie. Uh, Kundun, um, another religious epic about the uh, Dalai Lama. It's actually one of the few I haven't seen. Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage, another collaboration with Paul Schrader. Uh, then Gangs in New York, another kind of long, gestating passion project. Uh, for my money, uh, his worst, week, or let's say weakest, uh, be a little charitable there, movie. Uh, and that also is when he starts his collaboration with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, which, I don't know, I, I think is fruitful in the way that a, a, a tree with rotten apples on it is is fruitful. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio as an actor, and I... Uh, I think of his performances in, in Scorsese movies. I think they've mostly been bad. Uh, he does The Aviator right after that, a movie I've not seen in years. Another big Oscar player that I'm not all that keen on revisiting. Uh, yes. Well, that was the first year I ever watched the Oscars. Oh, um, whoa! Yeah, yeah, big year for me. Uh, then he did The Departed. Um, not all that great or memorable movie. Uh, it's fun. Uh, it's got kind of big, broad performances and like funny lines and a lot of like colorful swearing. But uh, it's weird that that's the movie he would finally win Best Director for. It was kind of one of those award season narratives where there was just no way it wasn't going to happen. Uh, I remember when George Lucas, uh, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Ford Coppola came out to announce Best Director. Everybody was like, well, can you imagine if, they, if they'd gotten the three of them out there? And they were like, and Best Director goes to uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu for Babel. <laughs> like, it wasn't going to happen. Um, then he did Shutter Island, uh, Hugo, uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, and then finally silence uh another kind of long gestating passion project um i i said in the last episode i think this last decade uh the 2010s for him in a uh, in a storied career a career that obviously does not lack for uh praise i think uh this has been the best and most interesting stuff because he's also been doing a lot of documentaries along the way uh, obviously continuing to do his preservation work 
and uh, just continuing to be a great uh, ambassador for cinema. So I want to ask a follow-up question to his whole career being laid out in front of us like this. And this can apply to his any point in his career, but at what point do you think Martin Scorsese became Martin Scorsese? That's interesting. I, I see. I kind of think he really is a good example of uh, an auteur who kind of came like fully formed out of the box. Um, if you watch Who's That Knocking at My Door, it's not a great film, but I think the thematic preoccupations are all there. Um, he's actually working with Thomas Schoonmacher on that one, his, his longtime editor, who I think wouldn't direct the next few films. So they, they're clearly already kind of establishing what we think of as the style. And it ends with this sort of, uh, it ends with the sequence cut to the title song. That's all like him, like zooming around, like zipping around, like looking at like church, uh, iconography set to this like pop song. Um, so I think in, in a way you could say he, he came, he, he was, you know, Martin Scorsese, capital M, capital S right there in the late sixties. But I think f- in the popular imagination, probably around when Taxi Driver came out, I think that's when he becomes, you know, the the director of this kind of n- new Hollywood thing that was going on. Yeah, and I haven't seen as many of his films as you, Bennett, but I feel like he's also an example of, of like stylistic consistency, too. Like when I think about like Mean Streets to Wolf of Wall Street or something like that, like I don't, I feel like his style has been very consistent the whole time. Um, Pros or cons, are, I guess, are subjective to that. But at least the guy sort of sticks to his like stylistic vision, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, last episode we talked about um, how he's he's a good starter director, both because the films are famous and acclaimed and because it's kind of easy to recognize what the Scorsese, you know, trademarks are. Uh, an interesting thing about the two films we picked is I think there are, I don't know, if you, if you looked at all of his films, they might not be the first two that you would pick, uh, just from a stylistic perspective, at least. I mean, his themes are obviously there, and, and, you know, The King of Comedy has Robert De Niro in it, but they don't necessarily look like what we think about when we think about Scorsese movies. And they certainly don't sound like what we think about when we think about Scorsese movies. Uh, yes. There's not a lot of gunshots. There's no Rolling Stones. Right. <laughs> See, that's the moment my brother, Brad, who's our, obviously the Splatooth film editor, the moment he selected for, you know, like, when did he become Scorsese is the intro to Mean Streets when it's, you know, he's in bed, he talks about whatever the line about church is, and then, mm-hmm. boom, be my baby. It's like, oh, here's Phil Spector, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I'm kind of with him on that. I don't know how you say, like, that's not as brett said just like a career making moment you know yeah it's it's a very big arrival sort of a moment yeah and from my understanding he was basically greeted as such uh upon the release of mean streets yeah so rob i'm gonna toss this over to you because silence had a no i wrote it down yeah my math was bad two and a half decade path to creation (laughs) 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 so this was a capital p passion project for scorsese it was delayed for years due to other films coming up, and then there were legal issues because he'd taken on these other films. What took him so long to create this film? Do you want to just give us the quick history in a nutshell? Yeah, so in a nutshell, um, he was invited by Akira Kurosawa, of all people, um, to come uh, play a part in his film Dreams as Vincent Van Gogh, which when I read that for the first time, I was like, what are you talking about? But I mean, it happened. Uh, and it sort of uh, laid this idea in his head um, then, you know, to make this film. And uh, when he was actually, you know, trying to get the production going in 2009, um, he was sort of, um, the film was uh, put in development hell, 
as the kids call it, um, where he he also sort of was distracted by, you know, working on Shutter Island and, and Hugo and, you know, Wolf of Wall Street and things like that. Um, but I think it's a lot of squabbling between producers and contracts. That's sort of like classic... Um, the people, the like, not to be mean, but like the uncreative people behind the scene wanting to get as much money as possible from these projects, uh, you know, diverting, you know, Scorsese's attention. So I don't think it, it doesn't seem like it was because of like his creativity as such. Um, it was all the like the legality of who's going to make this film, um, which uh, that's the film industry for you. It speaks to what a tough sell the subject matter is, though, that even even Scorsese took like two and a half years to finally secure everything to make this happen. You know, oh, yeah. a, uh, yeah. a three hour movie about like crises of faith and torture. Uh, not not exactly. I don't know. Appointment viewing for for most people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is like we've said, the third of his religious epics. Correct me if I'm wrong. The last temptation of Christ was banned in many parts of the world on when it was released. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think someone was famously killed at a uh, bombing at a theater that was premiering it. Okay, so yeah, you have a guy who's had <laughs> Last Temptation of the Christ banned, and then he's saying, I want to do another three-hour epic about, you know, people believing. So that is that is kind of a tough sell. <laughs> so I'm curious how you feel religion and, to a greater extent, belief and people being part of a larger organization play into Scorsese's overall body of work oh for me i think community is a huge aspect of a lot of his films i mean when i think of you know movies like goodfellas in particular like the the community of the mob um is very strong like maybe less so than like coppola or something like that if you watch the godfather it's so stressed like the family 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 aspects but I think the community that he shows in silence is very much like the community that is sort of born through his, you know, more famous gangster films, uh, certainly. I, I think he's always been interested in um, those questions of kind of personal faith and how they help people. I, well, I, there's there's the sense of how they build a community, but I think there's also the sense that personal faith can be uh, kind of alienating, too. Um, particularly in movies like this one and in Mean Streets that have kind of a first-person narration where we can kind of see someone literally like doing the work of trying to trying to reconcile their actions with their beliefs and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I think he's someone who uh, understands that it can be both a beautiful communal thing and also a really kind of painful, alienating thing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the sort of in bold ideas that I have about this film is that um, he strives for this sort of like cinematic honesty and how he presents these scenes. Like on the one side, he shows the love that's sort of present at these masses, even though they're secret and the, the baptisms and the looks on people's faces when they're, you know, in in the presence of the priests, like it, it, it means so much to them. But he also stresses so much on the other side, the like death and destruction that these priests bring, how they're tied to colonialism uh, in capital letters, and they're sort of soldiers in this cultural war from you know against Europe against Japan, um, and he's very honest about that in the presentation, which I think is why this film in particular I'm sort of drawn to it is that it's it's hard to pin this film down because he creates a kind of a well-rounded portrait of of what these communities are going through because of the priests. 
it's rare that you would go to a, a, a United Artists Theater and see a film that includes so many long scenes of just kind of people outlining their personal philosophies and people having debates like this. And um, yeah, I don't know, to your point about like honesty, there's an objectivity to it too. We, we sort of, we're shown the whole picture. We're shown everything good that the priest's presence in Japan can, can, can bring and everything bad. Uh, and I don't know, I, well, it seems to more often than not lead toward that bad side. I think he, particularly in those early scenes, which I called um, this movie's equivalent of the, this is the life sequence that we get in his mob movies. Like I, it, it's very clear what like a real positive impact they've had on these people's lives and what like the, what the community they built around faith means, you know? So, Jukeboxes and accents aside, so many of his films follow the same trajectory, form, and style. What in particular sets silence apart from Scorsese's mob films? For me, it's the it's the confessional aspect of this film. It's the it's the self criticism almost of modern Catholics. Like this is a film where you almost see him going through the wheels of 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 thought about what it means to be a Catholic in modern day. Like you see the like in the film you see the history, the history of the priests going there, um, shepherded in the night, like Apocalypse Now or Zero Dark Thirty, some like sort of war film. Um, and they're infiltrating these communities, one to, you know, as sort of like soldiers. It's very strange. Like when you look, when I talked about before about learning about Catholic history, it's a, it's a lot of politics. It's mostly about power and, and money and land and et cetera, et cetera, which is kind of a cynical way to look at um, faith. But Scorsese is very honest <laughs> about that. And it seems like in other films like Casino or Goodfellas, like I don't see that sort of. Um, confessional aspect like this feels like a very very personal film to me i um i think mean streets is the one mob movie that really has that confessional aspect to it i think that's a mob movie that's focused on a introspective character who's sort of who's questioning his actions and i don't know famously kind of considers robert de niro's character to be a, a sort of a religious project a way of saving himself but and I, I haven't seen casino so i can't speak for it i think um goodfellas and the irishman are about like characters who are like incapable of introspection um i don't know henry hill is all about artifice and then as we're made to understand with frank sheeran he's not someone who thinks thinks twice about anything he's someone who just kind of does what he's told so in that respect it's very different than the other mob movies but i think i think you can draw a link uh between mean streets and silence um in 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 that confessional uh aspect that you're talking about rob let's dive into the plot a bit because this is very much a movie about faith and the lengths people go to confirm their beliefs and rob do you want to just tell us you know what these characters are doing yeah so uh set the scene it's 17th century japan uh two priests uh or we see um two priests are talking to their sort of jesuit uh boss i don't know what it'd be called um and they're there's a lot of persecution in, in Japan at this time against Christians um, because it's sort of um, shaking up the the social structure of Japan almost um, and the religious structure, of course, with it being a Buddhist country at the time. And so these priests are like, wait, where's our mentor? He was in Japan for a long time. And, and, and the rumors are that um, he's apostatized, which I'm sure is a word we're going to say a thousand times <laughs> when speaking about this film, which means that he's renounced. You're referencing Liam Neeson's character, who is yeah. F- uh, Padre Ferrero. And the missionaries yeah. who go are 
Adam Driver plays Father Garupe, and Andrew Garfield plays Father Rodriguez. And they and they are tasked with finding their old teacher um, and figuring out if these rumors of him renouncing Christianity and um, becoming a part of, I guess, the Japanese government almost uh, are true. And so they steal in the night to go to Japan and they sort of infiltrate the communities to um, to administer Christian sacraments and things like that to the the secret Christians there who are living sort of in fear um, and that's sort of the broad plot um, of the beginning. So fathers Rodriguez and Garupe meet a drunk man in a, I believe it's a bar, um, whose name is Kichichiro, and he takes them to a small village, and he kind of disappears as soon as they arrive there, and they're not sure what's going to happen, and then all of a sudden, basically the entire village comes out, and they take them in because they have been secretly practicing, practicing Christianity, much of the film focuses on how, especially these villagers, um, handle belief in the face of persecution. Um, what stands out to you guys about the scenes with the villagers and their willingness to essentially die for their outlawed beliefs? I think suffering is a huge aspect of the presentation where he spends so much time um, filming their teeth, um, filming their bodies and like how they're sort of in pain when they're walking around. Obviously, he films the torture sequences when the Christians are are sort of found and, and killed to great detail, um, especially the torture of the priests that are there. Um, so I think when he's filming the people in these early sequences, uh, yes, he, he really stresses the, the happiness and joy that they get from the priest being here, but he makes a huge stress on their pain and how they're trying to use the priest as sort of like a bomb um, for that sort of existential and actual like concrete physical pain, um, which is uh, what Ben and I talked about before, is very Catholic. Folk focusing so much on pain and suffering is a huge part of uh, the mythology of the church. I think it's crucial that we get those those scenes though of them kind of successfully like administering sacraments and really just kind of making a, a palpable difference in their lives though, because this could have easily been. The Passion of the Christ and focused exclusively on the suffering and exclusively on like torn flesh. And I don't know, I, 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 I think those early sequences when he talks about, you know, taking too many confessions to count, not even necessarily understanding what people were saying, but just like being able to tell that they believed. Um, I, uh, I don't know, I think those those sequences, though they're brief, are uh, effective enough for me to uh counter any arguments that the movie is just a uh, you know misery porn so i think it's important to bring up that in 1971 masahiro shinoda made his own japanese adaptation of this book and one of the main differences i noticed between the two adaptations is how they handle the violence against the villagers in shinoda's version the violence is fairly quick and it's not like lingered on but scorsese on the other hand as you guys have mentioned he kind of throws in as much Catholic guilt as he can muster, and you see people dying, you know, on the cross in the ocean, like you see them drowned. How do you feel about the violence as Scorsese portrays it? So this is one of my sort of gripes with a lot of Scorsese's work. Um, I think sometimes people can perceive this violence as like the rawness, like, oh, look, at he's showing you experience uh, unhindered by a lens of cinema, of like... Of, a sparkling presentation or something like that. Like he's showing you the raw suffering. Um, 
I think raw has a very uh, broad definition in film too, right? Like you watch Chantal Ackerman's films and you wouldn't say they're like raw in the way that a Scorsese film is raw, but she's showing you like unfettered reality through, you know, her lens, which to me is extremely raw. Um, So I, I think a lot of the times people confuse the violence as being this sort of cutting to the core of human life and especially how, how long he shoots them. I, I get grow kind of tired of it, but it, it also is sort of, uh, I guess, you know, very Catholic, obviously, you know, with how much stress is put on Jesus's crucifixion and the, and also through the history, the killing of priests and becoming martyrs and saints. Like it feels like those moments where the film is like, Oh, these are the martyrs of the Japanese Christian religion. So we're putting a lot of stress on this at times, but um, I think it's complicated. I don't think it's that simple. Um, because he also shows, um, sometimes how silly the deaths are, like the death in, um, the courtyard of a prison. So at at one point, Andrew Garfield is brought to this sort of compound with, um, Japanese officials and they're trying to force him to apostatize, to give up Christianity. And there's a bunch of people that you sort of meet in the middle of the film who are also there imprisoned. And there's a scene where, um, they're coerced to step on like a symbol of their religious faith and they don't do it. And when they get through that, they feel very relieved. And then when they go back to their cell, they keep one person um, and he's sort of sitting there relaxedly talking to a guard and another guard comes over and just like quickly chops his head off. And it's this incredible transition from relief to horror. Um, And I think that's a part of the violence that I find actually interesting because it seems to be like contrasting pacing and atmosphere and, and an interesting sort of stylistic touch. Um, and different than just like, oh, let's wallow in suffering like the Catholic Church. Like, it's very unexpected. I think the uh, visceral emphasis in the suffering is is possibly the primary difference between his adaptation and Shinoda's. And it, it's it's where it's most obvious, probably, that a Catholic is direct. Well, it's most obvious that a Catholic is directing it in the fact that there's like a closing title card dedicating it to the missionaries. Like, I won't spoil the ending of Shinoda's film for you, Rob, but it's it's a lot less ambiguous we will about talk how about he that. feels. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I think Shinoda's handling of the torture is a lot more interesting. Like, I'm not going to lie, like, the, the the visceral torture and stuff, like, I like it, it, it hits me on a gut level for the same reason it hits Scorsese, obviously, because I used to go to church every week and, like, have to look at a big statue of a guy being tortured to death you know and because like i've read inferno and you know like because like that, that it, it's fascinating to me but shinoda as opposed to that scene where the guy suddenly gets his head cut off shinoda's version of that is there's a guy who's buried up to his head and they have another guy run through the courtyard on a horse while his wife is like tied to a post and is being like coerced into apostatizing and uh it's a similar kind of you know tension release tension release sort of thing and it's horrifying and the guy doesn't get his head right over but it's still it's still you know i don't know that I, I for me it's more effective than any of the uh i don't know kind of on-screen torture we see in scorsese's film uh i'll be honest like watching the shinoda film this morning was the worst thing i could have done for my perception of the scorsese film like oh, i i like that scorsese is more ambiguous but like for me like all of the ambiguity he is introducing is it feels like letting characters off the hook or something. I don't know. Like, I almost wish he he, he put a finer point on things. Yeah, I mean, I thought the Shinoda one was overall a better film, I'll say. Um, I don't know. It just handled the 
preachers in a totally different way where, you know, Rob, I know you read it differently, but I think the Scorsese one ends in like, yeah, Christianity prevails. Like that's essentially what this film is saying to me because, you know, it just shows how strong their beliefs are and like they found a way to make it last. So yeah, the main difference is that in Shinoda's version, like it's about crushing Andrew Garfield's character, you know, Father Rodriguez. And in both, they do use the villagers essentially as pawns. Just, you know, they tell them, oh, it's only a formality. Like, you just need to step on this and then you'll be let free. Half the time, they end up killing those people even after they've renounced their religion just to get under Father Rodriguez's skin and just say, like, it's not about what they do. It's we need to show a a padre renouncing their religion as a message to the people. And... I don't know, it seems like they allow Andrew Garfield to hold on to his faith a lot. But in the other version, he is absolutely crushed by the end. Like, there is no turning back to religion for that man. <laughs> I mean, Ben, did you read that similarly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I saw it as the, the Japan had, had fully killed any Christian impulse in him. And I also, I, 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 again, I won't spoil the precise nature of the ending. I saw the ending as taking a, a pretty like blunt anti-colonial stance in a way that uh, Scorsese doesn't. Uh, again, maybe because of too much, I don't know, sympathy, closeness for the, the European characters. Yeah, that's what's that's a part of this film that's very infuriating, um, especially putting... Um, AMDG at the end of the film, ad maiorum dei gloriam. It's a, it was the motto of my high school. It means for the greater glory of God. And putting that at the end of the film after you just illustrated how awful colonialism is and how uh, religion is often the, um, the actors of that colonial pressure and uh, through death and destruction. I just thought that was so... Um, I don't know, almost like offensive. Like I thought that like ending the film like that for Scorsese was just like, what are you doing, dude? Like that's such a So Rob, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on this because yeah. Scorsese is obviously a very religious man. Um mm-hmm. Bennett, you mentioned before we started recording, what did he want to do before he became a filmmaker? He uh, thought about becoming a priest, actually. He is much like, uh, like I said, whatever the term is for somebody who fails or drops out of the seminary, he was uh, one of those, like your uh, like your teachers. Right. So, Rob, I mean, I don't know how you can see this as saying Christianity is bad, because he is very much, in my view, coming at this as the awesome power of religion as a whole. And they even, you know, in talking with the higher-ups in the Buddhist church, they kind of say, like, well, it's all the same God, but Christianity is the bad one. And he kind of has to accept that it's just like, I can't push this on these people, but no one really loses their faith. So how can you see this as a damnation of Christianity? I don't think it is. I think that's the issue with it. I think, um, he shows you all the historical facts and like events of things that sort of happened, but he's still able to reconcile all of that um, uh, violence and horror with this is how strong faith, the faith is of Catholics if they're able to endure these sort of things or endure this history even um, and still be faithful. That's the parts of the film that I sort of deviate from. And I think it has to do with... Um, Father Rodriguez as well is uh, it's unclear whether he learned anything from any of these events, 
which is very infuriating, but also kind of interesting because, um, you know, not to spoil it, but he keeps his faith in the end. And, and when you see the ending, there's like a tangible thing that you see um, that's like, oh, he still believes. And I want to scream at the guy, like, after all of the things that you've been through um, and seen and done that uh, it hasn't shaken or expanded your perspective at all, um, which I think could be perceived as, oh, that's the power of Catholicism. Uh, but on my end, it's like, wow, how limited your perspective, you know, or how rigid you are in your perspective. I think that's like sort of a personal take on the film, but I, I think Scorsese comes at it from a different angle, um, which is uh, one of the parts of the film that I find really maddening. So. I mean, I think his perspective has at least changed, though, in the sense that he no longer he no longer has the suicidal impulse to proselytize. I mean, and worse than suicidal, I mean, he no longer has the destructive impulse to to proselytize. I don't know. I mean, I I guess Scorsese comes down on the side of like that being the best possible conclusion for everybody is just you know yeah. Father Rodriguez keeping his faith personally and I don't know leaving the people of Japan be. Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, I. Whereas the ending of the the uh, Shinoda one is really like angry and defeatist, I mean the the Scorsese one really does seem to end on this kind of hopeful note. I think also it's it's a film that really, and I've talked before about loving films like this. It's a film, it's a film where I think definitively within the diegesis God exists, uh, and I'm not just talking about the the voiceover um, that we hear, which is it's Kieran Hines's voice. I'm kind of surprised they didn't go with Liam Neeson's voice. Uh, considering I don't know his. Can you explain who he is in the film? In the film, oh, uh, K- uh, Kieran Hines plays their uh, I don't know their their boss back in Portugal, the one who kind of sends them on the mission to Japan, and then Liam Neeson is their you know their teacher who is possibly apostatized and taken a Japanese wife. Uh, spoiler: He has in fact apostatized and is living as a Japanese man. Um, I also not to keep harping on the Shinoda one. I thought it was sort of interesting that uh, they have a Japanese actor play Ferreira in the Shinoda movie. Um, an interesting touch. Um, yeah, I don't know. I it might have just been a like like a concern a concern of the production, but uh, I don't know. Either way, I think it it's kind of powerful to have like I don't know just an actual Japanese guy playing uh, Ferreira, like having his his assimilation to the culture being portrayed that way. But sorry, as I was saying, uh, the film I think suggests that God sanctions the mission in a way because when they're that great sequence of them first arriving in Japan, which I think is something the Shinoda film lacks, is the kind of arrival. Uh, sequences uh, we get a shot after I think we get kind of just like a god's eye view sort of down at the boat and then we get some shots from within and the camera like tilts up and sort of is briefly like placed like above the clouds uh, it, I don't know it's it's it can feel like an incongruous shot but I don't know watching the film again I feel like I don't know it to me it seemed like him saying like god giving the seal of approval for the mission I don't know in a way um and I don't know, I mean, we, we, we can maybe debate, like, what aspect of the mission Scorsese is saying God is approving, and, like, I don't know, maybe this is just me wanting to give Scorsese the benefit, benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> I don't think he's saying colonialism is good, or, you know. Can I just quickly mention a few quick things? Yeah. Num- number one, the Shinoda version is 30 minutes shorter. I really appreciated that it <laughs> cut, there is no Hollywood bullshit in his version, everything like so much of these two are line for line the same like there's a lot that's identical but it's the little differences that really got under my skin the biggest one 
being in Scorsese's, Andrew Garfield has an internal monologue. It, it kind of got to me. Because <laughs> the one thing I did like is that, you know, as he's watching the villagers and stuff being tortured, he's screaming in his head, apostatize, you know, renounce your faith, renounce your faith. So it shows that, you know, there is some understanding of basic humanity in him. But I don't know. It just so many little things added the unnecessary 30 minutes, I feel. Part number two, I was going to mention where, you know, he's again spoiler alert here if you haven't seen it this is probably a good place to stop because i think we're going to dive into the ending of both adaptations um but he is looking at whatever whatever the plaque is called i forget and he hears the voice of god or jesus tell him step on it i've suffered with you i've been with you the whole way i'll stop there what do you guys make of that scene when god breaks his silence to talk to him or does he well i I would like to think that it it isn't because if it is God actually talking to Andrew Garfield's character, then it is one of the most heavy handed ham fisted, uh, techniques I've ever seen. Um, but on the other side, if it's connected to the delusions of grandeur that like Bennett is talking about, um, I think that is interesting because it makes me think about, um, that sequence with the interpreter when, um, Rodriguez is first captured by the Japanese government. The interpreter comes to him and just machine guns all of these quotes. Um, he says things like, um, uh, we have our own religion. Maybe you didn't notice it. <laughs> things like that. Um, he, he was talking about a priest who was in Japan for a long time, but didn't bother to learn Japanese. Um, and he said all the time he taught here and he did not learn things like that. I think it sort of, it hammers home the ego of his character that um, at this moment of apostasy, the only re the only way that he can do it is if God tells him that it's okay. Um, and not for, not to stop the suffering of those around him. I mean, the fact that it's a familiar voice suggests to me that it's probably not like we're, we're maybe not supposed to take it literally as God, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I, I guess because I'm kind of disinclined to give Rodriguez uh, the benefit of the doubt. I do think it is kind of a, a, a moment of self-justification you know how, how convenient that god waited this long to start talking to you you know although i don't know, i guess you could say that about any uh i don't know any, any sort of biblical miracle right like uh, oh how convenient that paul was on the road to damascus and all that but i don't know i i i, I guess i don't necessarily see it the same way I, I i see that one shot as a full-on confirmation of the existence of god within the film i don't know if we're meant to take the voice over as literally uh the voice of god because i think I don't know. I, I I think a lot of Rodriguez's behavior has should lead us to believe that it's maybe just uh, those delusions of grandeur, the self justification. So after he apostatizes, it goes to a weird new narration where a Dutch trader comes in, and that's T R A D E R uh, trader comes in and starts talking about watching Fathers Ferrero and Rodriguez, where they go through all the imports and check it carefully to make sure there's no christian imagery attached to any of it what does this transition add to the film other than allowing scorsese to sneak into an extremely well-disguised cameo <laughs> i think that's it's... where he shows up okay that's where he shows up <laughs> yeah i'll look for the eyebrows because that's usually what tips him off yes <laughs> i i think that sequence at least functions to me as a perspective shift so i think there's a few perspective shifts in this film um that are interesting to the presentation where um you start in the the perspective of the Jesuits, 
they come and they administer sacraments. You're within their community and you really only are um, operating in the, the eyes of the Christians. And then they get captured by the Japanese government. And then your undue perspective is brought in. The interpreter comes in and sort of highlights the colonialistic aspect of the priest's journey. Um, and um, the inquisitor even has this sort of uh, off-color misogynist joke about how um, the European nations are like four concubines fighting for the attention of uh, a lord or something. And then you have the further perspective shift of that last sequence where now it's sort of at like a bird's eye view where this writer isn't really in the systems of the film, right? It's not, you know, part of the Japanese government fighting the priests. He's not part of the priests um, uh, trying to promote Christianity. It's this sort of like outside perspective that comes in um, to talk about them as like an interesting quirk of history or a secret layer of history. So I found that to be pretty interesting of a perspective shift and a film that desperately needs many perspective shifts um, to sort of save the sort of the ideological center of it too. Yeah. It's almost like he's recognized that like we're, we're sick and tired of spending time inside of uh, Rodriguez's head. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I, I don't know. It's like, it's like crucial to have a, a thoroughly neutral party kind of commenting on the action. I feel like. Yeah, especially to save the sort of sappiness of the ending, too. God, you guys hate this movie. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's interesting oh. that the sappy ending is like, you know, uh, spoiler alert, uh, he's being cremated after years of service of, um, I guess, uh, pointing out religious artifacts and doing whatever um, propaganda that he's doing. And then he's being cremated and there's that zoom in shot and you realize that um, his Japanese wife slipped in a cross to his hands and that you realize, oh, he's been faithful all along. It was the crucifix that one of the villagers gave to him, right? Before he was put on the cross in the ocean. Yeah. 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 So I think that perspective shift saves that ending a little bit, Um, but not so much. (laughs) Before we go into the end, because I, 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 Bennett, I do want to compare the last shots of both adaptations because they're so drastically different. But we mentioned the Inquisitor. I have to ask about his voice because um, I, like, I read the New Yorker's review and they were like, "Yeah, it's a fairly good movie." And then the Inquisitor just starts talking. He sounds like a character from Mad Magazine. Oh, I love the Inquisitor. I don't know. I I, I think he's such a great character. He's he's having a ball. I don't know. <laughs> He's kind of like Fay. He's very, uh, he's very fussy with like the fan and stuff. Or when he's, uh, when he's like uh, covering his mouth from all the dust. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I like his, uh, I like his vibe. I don't know. <laughs> I like everything about the guy. I don't know. It's just like they tried to make him funny. I thought. Yeah, it just, I thought it worked. Did you? Yeah. I don't know. It just felt strange to me. <laughs> to me, it adds a very much needed um, reducing of the seriousness of like Rodriguez. Like when Rodriguez comes in and he has all of these. Um, spiritual ideas and he's ready to argue like he even at one point says in the compound take me to the inquisitor i'm ready to like do battle like ideologically. Uh, and they all laugh at him yeah and they all laugh at him because it's like to them they realize that this is very much like geopolitics but to him he's like oh i'm ready to talk about how awesome jesus was and how great the saints were and the inquisitor's like dude we know on the grand scale while you're actually here we're not going to have this sort of like spiritual debate um, so I think that's a very important part of this film, actually, like the Inquisitor, like him injecting the, like almost deflating Rodriguez in those moments, um, is a great touch. 
Yeah, the the Scorsese uh, version definitely feels the need to make him like the villain, the the big bad. Even the way he's introduced when they uh, first show up to the village, as you see him kind of like coming through the fog. I, I think having uh, having a character who takes that sort of like approach to things, who I don't know, reads every line like a laugh line is. I, I just like the way it flies in the face of kind of the strange seriousness of, of the, I don't know, Garfield performance. And I think like both the Inquisitor and Garfield are people for whom this like awful business is just, you know, this is just their nine to five. This is just, hey, this is just work, buddy. And they've taken such opposite approaches to that. I don't know. So this movie stars Kylo Ren and Spider-Man. Um, uh-huh. How do you feel about the acting overall? Um, it's, it's not my favorite performance from either of them. I'll say either (laughs) Adam Driver or Andrew Garfield. Um, before we got on the mic, Brett was talking about, um, how he doesn't like the beginning of Last Temptation of the Christ because you have to spend so much time with Jesus and the boys who are basically characterized as just sort of like New Yorkers. Um, so you get a lot of like the kind of out of the tradition of like the 50s biblical epic, everybody just kind of brings their own accent. So you have, you know, centurions from Queens and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, Jews from Brooklyn. Um, and I kind of wish they had taken a somewhat similar approach to this instead of having everybody kind of do an accent because you have Liam Neeson doing what he always does, which is like he's from Ireland, but not. And um, I, I don't know, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield have some inconsistent accents. It's such a. It's such a cinema sins way to, to judge the movie, but it can't help but be distracting when so much of the movie is Andrew Garfield's voiceover. I I, I don't know, like your just use your English accent. That reads as foreign in in like normal cinematic shorthand. What accent? I mean, they're going for a Portuguese accent, right? To be that... fair, I have no idea what a Portuguese accent sounds <laughs> yeah. like, but I yeah, don't know I, if they do. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> It doesn't really sound like anything to me. It sounds like this uh, vague foreign accent, especially Adam Driver's. I was like, are you doing a Spanish accent? Are you doing a, like, what are you doing? But uh, yeah, as the movie kind of languished in, in development hell for forever, there was a ton of kind of other big names attached. Gail Garcia Bernal and Benicio Del Toro were attached with um, Daniel Day-Lewis um, going to play Ferreira. I mean, I, I think Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna would have been really kind of oh, cool yeah. meta casting. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. At least two Spanish speaking actors is a little closer. Um, but I, I, I think one of the good bits of recasting that happened in the interim is I, Ken Watanabe was originally supposed to play either the translator or the inquisitor. And I think having a familiar face among the kind of Japanese antagonists in the film would really... That's something that I would expect of a Hollywood film, and I'm glad they didn't do that here because I don't know. Uh, like, you need to. It needs to feel like a totally unfamiliar world, and uh, I don't know. Having a guy from the Batman movies uh, playing oh, yeah. the main antagonist would feel I don't know too familiar. I think we should probably wrap this up by comparing the final shots between Scorsese and Shinoda's adaptations. They're totally different. Um, we've mentioned that you know Scorsese took the liberty to end on a shot of a crucifix with his dead body implying that you know he's been a christian this whole time and he never lost his belief bennett would you like to describe how the shinoda one ends or would you like me to take it sure uh well let's just say it ends uh, a bit more abruptly uh rodriguez apostatizes uh is kind of welcomed into uh, kind of uh, the Japanese society. Uh, I think it's. I think he also is going to become a scholar like Ferreira. And the final sequence is he is home with his Japanese wife, and Ferreira is watching him through a little sort of peephole 
as he uh, kind of begins to kind of forcibly, uh, I guess, commit what we might call marital rape. Uh, yes. On his new Japanese wife. Uh, it's a very, like I said, kind of a blunt anti-colonialist message, it seems. And also the final line, I believe we get in voiceover is just basically that like from that point on, Father Ferreira was known as uh, his Japanese name. So it's also very definitive that the man has lost the faith that, you know, the mission is over. Uh, I don't know. Japan has, you know, uh, defeated Christianity in that sense. And it weirdly almost it like welcomed colon it's 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 like defeated Christianity but still welcomed colonialism in a weird way. Like it feels uh, it's a it's a gross ending, honestly. Yeah, it's like, it's, like I'm dancing around describing it cuz it's just like ugh. It's uncomfortable to watch. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh it it's a bizarre way to end it. Yeah, and it's so so like we said so different from the kind of like hopeful uh I don't know, faith-affirming way Yeah, that Scorsese's film ends. There is no ambiguity to it. I mean, Rob, you kind of mentioned that you feel like it ends with putting Christianity in a bad light. I disagree with you on that. I, I see it as saying, like, this belief is unkillable, essentially. But Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that's what Scorsese's saying. But for me, watching the film, it, it almost reaffirms how I thought about, like, missionaries at this time especially. Right. Um but I think him, he puts a very fine point on it at the end being like, we are Catholics and this is the power of Catholicism to rise above all of this suffering. But me, like, judging that is how I take it as a, as a negative. So, obviously, this is a long movie. Um, we have almost cracked half the movie's runtime talking about it. Do you guys have any final thoughts? Because I feel like we should probably let the good people get on with their day at this point. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I've been a kind of a Scorsese hater during these two episodes, but let me let me just say, apostasy. Let me just, it's apostasy. Yeah. You <laughs> may as well be stepping on God here. Right? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me take a time. I think this film is a good example of the kind of Scorsese movies that I think deserve some more shine. Uh, the King of Comedy being one of them that presents a more complex picture of his imagined universes than his mobster movies, um, you know, Wolf of Wall Street included, movies that to me are have a very simple worldview. So I think silence in that way ha- is very interesting. But in the other way, uh, I think the, the film has a lot of the issues that I find a lot of sort of modern Catholic rhetoric has, where um, they're saying, yes, we have this horrible history um, filled with violence and death and uh, prejudice and horror, but our faith is enough to rise above that. And I find that to be a really um, almost like flippant disregard of, of, of people's suffering um, throughout time. And um, so when the movie ends like that, I, I see Scorsese being like, yes, faith is powerful. This is awesome. But on for me, I'm like, wow, that's that is how it should end if you can still keep, you know, your Catholic faith while understanding the history of missionaries that go to Japan and um, wreak uh, violence and destruction in their wake. Well, I would say that I, I, I wouldn't call the film flippant um, in its attitudes, at least not personally. I mean, for me. This is a film that I've now seen, much like The Irishman. I've seen it too many times for a film this long. How, how um, many? Uh, I think I'm on six, Good maybe, Lord. maybe five. <laughs> oh um, but it's also like one that I've watched like bits and pieces of quite a lot. I mean, I, I it's it's a film that I can't shake. Um, both, you know, there's there's images and sequences that stick out, and 
the questions it raises, though it seems to kind of reach a sort of definitive conclusion for its main character, I think um, I think the conversations its characters have, you know, um, are left very, very provocatively open-ended for you as a viewer. And I mean, obviously, as someone with some experience with Catholicism, it's maybe a little bit um, easier to, uh, to to get into for me. But I, I think for anybody, um, if, if you like other Scorsese movies, I'd say give give Silence and the King of Comedy a chance. Give give all of them a chance because, uh, you know, they were all directed by the same guy. And uh, some of the things you like about Goodfellas or Taxi Driver are, uh, are also present in uh, the King of Comedy and uh, Silence, etc. I, I joke about uh, it basically amounting to apostasy. But uh, I mean, I do really think um, he's definitely the best of the, the new Hollywood directors. And I think, I mean, for being as consistently excellent uh, as, as he's been for so long, I think if you're making like a Mount Rushmore of American directors, I feel like there's no way he's not on there. Um, alongside, you know, I don't know who else, Brackage, Cassavetes, Maya Darren, I, it would probably have to be like an eight head Mount Rushmore. But um, I think he would, I think he'd, He'd probably make the four. It would certainly be in the in the ten for 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 whittling it down. I think. Um, but yeah, folks, uh, watch Silence. It's it's not a film that uh, I don't know. It's not a film that leaves you um, I don't know feeling uh, settled. <laughs> it gives you a lot to think about. All right, so you know where we're going next. King Comedy Silence. Who wants to go first? I mean, King of Comedy wins hands down to me. I mean, I I really. I, to be honest with you, I liked that film a lot more than I even remembered, and I thought it was really interesting and also very relevant. Like I think that it's a film that's extremely it only grows in its relevancy um, as we grow in our uh, worship of celebrity and fame, and as the media industry transforms. Um, Silence is a, is a great film uh, as well. It definitely has its issues, but um, in my mind, these are like my two go to Scorsese films. All right, so Bennett, how about you? Silence versus King of Comedy. Which one are you taking? It's part of me wants to say Silence because I feel like <laughs> we've we've spent so much time just like shitting on it and talking about how it would be better if, if he had made different decisions and how the Shinoda film is better. But uh, you know, I got to vote. I, I got to vote. Uh, you know, my my conscience here. The King of Comedy is number one. I think it's my favorite Scorsese movie. I mean, I I had rewatched it fairly recently. I think I. I watched it probably in January and then just like rewatching it in the last like week I've seen it. I've watched it like three times in the last week. It just, it doesn't get old. Uh, it's, it's so good. And yeah, to your point, Rob, it's uh, very, very prescient. I think it, I don't know. It's, it's, I hate the phrase like ahead of its time. Cause it's really, I don't know. It's such a like self-important phrase about whatever time you're, uh, but it, it, it presupposes a lot of like intelligence about like the, about trends that nobody really has, but yeah, it, it seems to have predicted the way we still talk about celebrities. Uh, you know, Rupert Pupkin is still out there. <laughs> I, I have to agree with you guys. I think King of Comedy is, I'm going to say my second favorite, but I would probably twist my arm. I'd probably say among his top two minimum best movies. My favorite is After Hours. I love that one because it felt so different from the typical Scorsese movies, you know, because I feel like even with Silence and King of Comedy, there's a lot of parallel structure and you could kind of place characters between worlds and they're going to act in similar manners in certain ways. And I just feel like After Hours is such a departure from the typical, just like we have a straight narrative, you know, it's, it's going this way, but yeah, Scorsese, he's a, he's got some good movies. He's got some, uh, that I don't care for. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know. He's yet to he's yet to disappoint me. Really? Okay. Well, as always, Rob Bennett, thank you guys for joining me. Um, but we actually have a rare instance where Bennett and I have a new episode planned. Bennett, do you want to say who the director will be, and we will save the our our third guest for later? We'll we'll announce that person later. Yeah, sure. Uh, folks, uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Split Picks, where we'll be talking about two films, possibly three, from the great genius of silent comedy, Buster Keaton. And uh, I gotta say, in in, in rewatching uh, a lot of Keaton films, I, I think I prefer him to Chaplin. Not to slander Chaplin uh, the day after what would have been his like 140th birthday, but uh, I don't know. I think Keaton's got him beat. It's a tough competition. Um, yeah, our guest is going to be great, though. There may be some clues about who it'll be coming out soon, so stay tuned for that. And yeah, thank you guys again for joining us. Hope you guys have a great day full of... Uh, it looks sunny in both of your apartments, so... <laughs> uh, just, uh, this could be a day full of uh, Catholic angst for me. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Good old guilt. All right, well, I'm Craig Wright. You've been listening to Split Picks. This is our first special two-parter episode. That's all we've got for you today. So as always, thanks for listening. We have Synesthesia coming back soon. Art has Drive-In Season 2 is coming back soon. Stay tuned. We have a ton of great stuff planned for you. We will uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be around. 